In December of 2014, Nobel Prize winner James Watson announced his decision to sell a valuable possession, his Nobel Prize medallion. Why would somebody so important to scientific and medical history resort to this drastic measure? Find out today on Footnoting History. Welcome to Footnoting History. I am your host, Leslie Skousen, and today we will examine the cutthroat world of science labs. Successful experiments come at a great cost, and scientists work very carefully in order to protect their discoveries. In 1962, James Watson, Francis Crick, and Maurice Wilkins claimed the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for their collective discovery of the structure of DNA. This discovery relied heavily on the work of another scientist who used reverse X-ray technology in order to view tiny patterns in the protein responsible for all biological heredity. Her name was Rosalind Franklin, and she would die of cancer just a few years later at the young age of 37. From her single discovery, medicine has advanced enormously, determining the process of procreation. Genetic mutations and fetal defects may be detected now before birth, due in large part to this collective scientific discovery. However, the Nobel Prize Committee may only allow up to three scientists to share any year's prize, and so Franklin was struck off the list of recipients and went some years unrecognized for her critical work towards this landmark discovery. The product of this team was the double helix structure of DNA. These twisted chains were bonded by hydrogen to the organic structure of the organism. There is more to the science than this discovery, but I fear I would not do the explanation justice. And besides, I found the pronunciation to be pretty tricky. I can confirm that through this discovery, scientists realized that they could treat DNA to alter it and force a cell to produce a dormant substance. An example of this application is treating a genetic mutation to manipulate the spontaneous production of, say, insulin. The discovery contradicted medical assumptions about proteins in the body being responsible for determining the genetic similarities from parent to child, and none of this would have been possible without a methodology produced by Dr. Rosalind Franklin. Franklin was born to a wealthy London family in 1920. Her parents sent her to study physical chemistry at a women's college in Cambridge University. The demand for additional labor during World War II enabled her training to go much farther than previous generations. The aftermath of World War I included an increase in funding and calls for conquering the plague of infection that had killed more soldiers than bullets or shells. Roughly 50% of soldier deaths were attributed to non-fatal injuries that became infected after leaving the front. Franklin was among the teams of female scientists and medical professionals working to solve such medical problems. Among the scientists studying DNA, only Rosalind Franklin had training and degrees in the field of chemistry. Her dissertation focused on the chemical compounds and properties of coal, exploring an expertise in crystallography, a field crucial to the X-ray work that would ultimately define the double helix structure of the DNA molecule. When Franklin earned her Ph.D., she joined a team at King's College at Cambridge working with Maurice Wilkins, who was a veteran of the Manhattan Project in the United States. Wilkins praised the use of crystallography to focus on DNA research, but reportedly expressed dismay upon discovering that Dr. Franklin was actually a woman. Their poor working relationship likely delayed the success of their project. They were soon joined by James Watson, a Chicago-based zoologist tasked with bringing the biologist's point of view to DNA experiments. Watson worked with Francis Crick in applying crystallography to hemoglobin, blood cells, and the four came together to synthesize varied backgrounds onto a single project. 
The subsequent project was fraught with interpersonal difficulties. The three men insisted that Franklin bring them coffee and refused to call her by the title of doctor, always referring to her as Rosie, even when she asked to be called Rosalind or Dr. Franklin. Watson later wrote of their discovery and characterized Franklin as a mere scientist's assistant, despite Franklin's contributions being the very core of the team's methodology. At one point, Franklin began performing her work at Birkbeck College in London, away from the drama and mistreatment. While at Birkbeck, she made important discoveries of the structure of tobacco DNA through this method of x-rays and crystallography. After this discovery, the team could no longer ignore her success. However, instead of inviting Franklin to return to Cambridge, they gained access to her x-ray images secretly and used her techniques without her knowledge in order to apply this success with tobacco to the structure of DNA in animals. The four appeared as co-authors in the subsequent landmark article in the scientific journal Nature. By 1962, the four were discussed as potential recipients for the Nobel Prize. As only three could receive the prize, and since three of the scientists had worked together physically, Rosalind was struck from the prize. James Watson's attitudes about society were not limited to disdain for female scientists. He also used his work as a way to support personal opinions about race and ethnicity. For instance, in 2000, Watson reportedly sought to prove that there was a link between sun exposure and sex drive as a way to explain the pop cultural ideal of the Latin lover. He supported the myth that fat people are lazy, while thin people are ambitious, and openly discussed this point of view while reflecting on his hiring practices to a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Yet his comments there were dismissed as the social awkwardness that often accompanies a so-called absent-minded professor credited with such brilliant discovery. A 2007 interview with the Sunday Times noted that he was, quote, inherently gloomy about the prospect of Africa because all our social policies are based on the fact that their intelligence is the same as ours, whereas all the testing says not really. Watson failed to cite any specific studies or testing beyond his own personal observations. He also further offered the evidence that unnamed people who have to deal with the black employees find equal intelligence not to be true, end quote. Finally, the greater community took notice. In reaction to these racist comments, Watson was asked to step down from his chairmanship after 40 years of service. Commentary like this had dogged Watson's career as rumors, but the interview put it all down in print for anyone to read. The director of the Human Genome Project, which was founded on the very discovery for which Watson's team won their Nobel Prize, gave a series of interviews fueled by hundreds of studies, hundreds of studies, that disproved Watson's racist assumptions. The message was that Watson's ideas were, quote, wrong from every point of view and inconsistent with the body of research literature in this area. The tight-knit community of scientists was dismayed that a renowned person could go so public with an old-fashioned view. A representative for the Federation of American Scientists explained, he has failed us in the worst possible way. It is a sad and revolting way to end a remarkable career. And this was not hyperbole. Watson found it exceedingly difficult to find a new position, despite his advanced age, expertise, long career, and annual income from many discoveries. To some, it came as a relief, having listened to claims about groups of people for much of his career without seeing Watson then take the consequences for his public attitudes. This did not change his opinions, of course, but merely took away some of the platforms for expressing them. 
In 2012, for instance, his invitation to a conference on women in science gave him the opportunity to explain that, although it makes more fun for men, they're probably less effective. And so, in 2014, at the age of 86, Watson put his Nobel medallion up for sale. By most accounts, Watson was not a poor man, but his status and reputation had taken a hit. Being the first man in Nobel history to sell his medallion would give him an opportunity to explain himself and adopt a sympathetic persona. Within a month of his announcement of intent to sell, a buyer stepped forward, Russian billionaire Alishev Yuzmanov, paid $4.1 million for the valued award. Then, in an act of kindness and reverence, the successful entrepreneur returned the medallion to its original winner. After creating a media frenzy, James Watson took home millions of dollars and his coveted prize. In an age when women, girls, and minorities struggle to gain traction in a variety of scientific fields, the professional response to Watson's published words against African Americans and female scientists suggests that there is a wider acknowledgement that Watson's views damage scientific work and discovery. After all, without Franklin's work on x-rays through crystallography, the DNA discovery would not have been possible. Similarly, arbitrarily encouraging some sections of the population to become scientists, but not others, could hinder major scientific discoveries today. Russian billionaires aside, scientific labs seem to appreciate a greater variety of backgrounds in their scientists. Rosalind Franklin did not survive her bout with cancer to see the Nobel Prize awarded, but this entire episode has allowed her story to be retold. Her legacy may serve as an inspiration to future scientists of any gender and background. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.